Hi, Dan. Hey, John. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm all right. <clears throat> I had a peanut butter sandwich. I got up uh, a little bit early. Oh, yeah? Uh, early enough that I was able to um, to get myself a peanut butter sandwich. Just peanut butter? Nothing? No jelly? No No, no, no. Nothing? No jelly. When I, when I say peanut butter sandwich, I mean... I mean a jelly sandwich. Peanut butter also. and jelly. What kind of peanut butter and jelly? Do you use jelly? Do you use jam? Do you use something else? Uh, when I say peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I mean jam. Okay. Uh, it is uh, raspberry jam exclusively. Okay. And, yeah, we've uh, talked ch- about the, your raspberry jam butter. thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, chunky, chunky peanut butter and uh, raspberry jam. So uh, that's uh, that's what that that's what that is. Okay. Uh, and I feel like, uh, having a little food, um, is, uh, is, is, is a different, it's different. Do you, you feel know, like better it, or worse? Well, you know, normally I, uh, wake in the morning mm-hmm. and I, uh, <clears throat> come down or I, I pass through a kitchen somewhere where I try and get, scramble up some coffee and then I sit down and start podcasting. Right. So generally when I start podcasting, I've had two sips of coffee and have been awake 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And as I've described before, I think that that, um, that that really characterizes my entire podcast oeuvre. Mm-hmm. And that uh, everyone who listens to the shows is listening to me in a state of, because I'm slow to wake up. You know, I'm a... I'm not somebody that bounds out of bed. I'm like, I drag out of bed. It takes me, if I'm not doing a show, I'll sit on the couch drinking coffee and staring into space. And if someone tries to talk to me, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Just give me a little while to wake up and I'll figure out what you're trying to say. And, you know, I'm, I'm always telling my daughter, like, just give daddy a little while to just get awake. But in, in my broadcasting career, I immediately start talking within minutes of waking up. And so the, the person that you know, mm-hmm. that you talk to once a week, the person that everyone knows who listens to these shows is someone who isn't awake yet. Right. And that's not, that's not to say that I'm what's slower. I'm just still, I still have a few, few toes in, in dreamland. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm dozy and I'm, in a little bit of a daze and kind of like punch drunk. And it would be extremely different. My The eight years I've been podcasting, the whole thing would be so different if I did shows starting at 6 p.m. or 9 p.m. Yeah, you've mentioned that. There was another show where we talked, an episode where we talked about, you know, how how you're, you were asleep. I think we had recorded later in the day on one time and, um, and it was completely different. It's noticeable, right? Yeah. And, and one of the shows that, uh, the Roderick on the line shows that people loved was the one that Merlin and I did about, um, house Trotter or whatever the, mm-hmm. the one that we did, uh, in the afternoon <clears throat> at Merlin's house. And partly it's just that I'm awake, I've been alive, I've had food. And so it's, a, it has a different, completely different quality. Right. Um, so when I wake up like an hour early and I have a sandwich, but I'm still in that, I'm still within that 
that hour period where I'm still washing the sleep out of my eyes and just kind of like, uh, um, but I do feel like I, I, today can't possibly be representative of what it's like to talk to me when I'm already awake. But, but, um, also I'm extremely distracted. I'm, I couldn't, I don't right now or in general when you're doing the shows. No, no, no. In general, when I'm doing the shows, I am not distracted. Okay. I, I have eliminated all distraction. I see. Um, because I don't have, you know, I don't like have toys on the desk or anything like that. Nobody's trying to talk to me. I'm always alone. Right. There's nobody watching me and nobody can hear me either, which are key things. Like for you sitting in your office, knowing that Hattie is on the other side of the glass, that would, in, that would be, that would make the, my shows completely different. Really? How? How so? It, well, because I would be primarily performing for the person who was right mm, there. Okay, I can see that, sure. Right? So I'd be, as, although I was talking to you, I would also be talking to Hattie, and I'd be including her, I'd be winking at her, I'd be, you know, like, thinking about what Hattie thinks about what I'm saying to you. Uh, right, so you'd, you maybe would be unintentionally a little bit less forthcoming, or you would be putting on more of a... Of a show. You'd be putting on a show. You'd be doing a performance. And now, Absolutely. but now you feel like it's just me and you because the listeners are not on your mind. Right. Right. And, and part of doing a show with you or with anybody yeah. is that I, that in some ways I, I turn off visual information even. I'm not looking at anything. I'm mm-hmm. just talking. I could do these shows completely with my eyes closed. Right. <clears throat> and that would probably be better if I put on a sleep mask. <laughs> Whereas if, you know, when I'm, do, when I'm doing it live uh-huh. or when Adam Pranica comes over here and sits in the chair, right? like when, when Adam or Ken Jennings is here and I'm looking at them, well, I'm doing a show with them. So it's, it's great. I just get, I'm just talking to them. But even if my little girl comes into the room and is playing with her Legos quietly in the corner while I record Mm -hmm. with Ken. Yeah. I am conscious of her listening to what I'm saying and I'm a little bit performing for her. I will start to talk to Ken in a way that in a way that I know my daughter is listening Mm -hmm. and I want her to understand what I'm saying. So it's not that I dumb it down, but I, but I say it partly to her. I'm certainly aware of her being there. Right. Um, and if I, if, I mean, you have this relationship where you are podcasting with Hattie there all the time. So I'm sure that you kind of have arrived at a symbiosis with one another, um, that now you, you wouldn't be able to tell, you wouldn't be able to say exactly like, do I do it differently? Cause Hattie's here. I don't know, but I definitely would. Right. And, um, I mean, as a matter of practice, I, I know that I don't because, uh, I mean, I've, I, I always feel anytime that I'm doing any kind of a podcast at all, I feel very much that I'm performing, but to me, that's not very different from just having a conversation with, with someone, uh, in that there, you know, it's, it's different. It's different when you're, you know, when, when it's like, if it was me and you sitting together at a, you know, 
at a, at a, a table in a restaurant or a coffee shop or something. That's, I'm not going to be any different really with you there than I am here. But there are certain things that you need to do when you're communicating with other human beings you wouldn't necessarily do when you're by yourself, obviously. And that's about the only thing that really changes for me. So whether, whether I'm here in this room and Hattie's in the next room, uh, or if she's gone to lunch and we're recording, that's, that doesn't change at all. It would change if I had a, my, you know, 11 year old son sitting there because I would have to, there's certain things I wouldn't talk about with him here, but I wouldn't be performing in any different way for him. That you know what I, I'm saying? That would that would not that would not change. Yeah, the performance. <clears throat> I'm a performer, right? Yeah, so, of course. Um, the performance isn't isn't noticeably different. Ken would never notice. That You're just I saying was, in your own mind the way that right. you. I see. I'm distracted. It's right. the distraction of like, okay, there's another person here, and even my daughter, who I should, by all rights, say I'm doing my show now. So I'm not thinking about you. And if you want to be in here, that's fine, but you get no special dispensation. Sure. But there's a, but in the back of my head, I'm like, I would like my daughter to be entertained. I would like her to understand. I would like her, you know, like I'm not, I'm not censoring myself. Like I better not talk about that because my daughter's here. It's more that I'm like, how can I make this entertaining for her? How can I, how can I have her listen to this conversation and come away with it? feeling that she knows something more that she feels better. Um, but I'm distracted. I I think that's sweet, sweet of you as a dad. Oh, well, but I, but I would do it if it was an old, I would do it if it was a cop here waiting to arrest me. I'd be like, okay, (laughs) let me just finish the show and then you can arrest me anyway. Better. (laughs) I'm going to entertain the shit out of this cop in the last 20 minutes before he takes me away. It's just a natural desire to, uh, well, it probably is what makes you a good performer, right? You you read the audience, you're tuned in, you're connected, you know what they want. You give them, you know, the performance that they were hoping for and they leave happy. I mean, that's a, that's a tricky thing, right? The performance they were hoping for. Like if I get too, I can screw myself up. Like the, like the guy that, that wrote us last week that we talked to, uh, we answered his letter on the after show yeah. where he said, you know, Hey, I'm kind of a <clears throat> kind of a lover here. <laughs> yeah, ladies love me, and I want to let them down easy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and um, but you know, I really like this gal, and I'm not sure whether I should just go for it. Right. Even knowing that, come on, it's going to be a rough go for her. Yeah. Being, you know, like you know, losing her shit over me. Right. And I was like, look, don't get too far ahead of yourself thinking that you know what other people want or need or are thinking at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Don't start planning her life for her. Mm-mm. You know, just do your thing. And <clears throat> the reason I said that to him is I, I'm absolutely that way. And if I'm looking at an audience or a person and I'm thinking about what they expect and what, you know, and like whether or not I'm going to fulfill their needs or, or desires, I find that I'm getting, I, I get way too ahead of myself, right? Cause I don't know who they are and they could look like somebody who's wanting something and then it turns out they want something else. So mm-hmm. although I'm performing and I am tailoring what I'm doing for someone else, <clears throat> 
I'm just clicking between versions of myself, right? I would right. never sell myself out by by dancing around being something that I'm not. Right. Being putting I'm, on a a persona that's not really you. Yeah, I'm never going to I'm never going to read a room and be like, "Yo, yo, what's up everybody?" <laughs> <laughs> but I, which is but maybe I, too bad because <laughs> you could get a lot of mileage from that. Yeah, right. But there's a version of me that's like all right, everyone. Well, thanks for coming and let's get started. And there's a version of me that's like, oh my God, this room smells. But you know, like it's always going to be me. Right. It's just, um, so I don't take, I don't tailor it beyond just sort of like the way you would pick a golf club out of a, out of a thing. You don't have an unlimited number of golf clubs. You've just got like, well, I got to hit this ball 300 yards. So there's only a few clubs I can pick. Right. right. Sure. But, but I'm distracted, uh, I'm often distracted by other things going on in my mind. And it's one of the reasons that I, uh, I enjoy podcasting. And one of the things I think that I get out of it is that a lot of the time I can foreground the thing that I'm worried about or, or, or distracted by, by just starting to talk about it. Right. I mean, these, these shows have no theme and have no preparation and have no, um, you know, I never think about what I'm going to talk about before I get here, but I can, I have this access to putting my frets, putting my, my, uh, uh, preoccupations like just right on, on the table. Cause you say every, every Thursday, you're like, what's going on. Right. <laughs> and, and even if I hadn't, and I never do come downstairs going, you know what I'm going to talk to Dan about today. Like I always blank slate and sit down and sometimes the preoccupation just doesn't make it out into words. We start uh -huh. talking about something else, but it's there. I'd have the, I have the option of saying like, well, I'm, you know, actually I'm a little bit worked up about a thing or a, I'm kind of like digesting something. And that's, that's what I think that's a big part of what keeps me coming back to it or why this, why this work is gratifying to me. Yeah. Um, and honestly for the last, it's really hard to look back at the last 10 years, say for instance, and, and get a good sense of what I was doing and how I, and how I've been the 10 years prior to that, when I was making records and touring, it's, it's fairly easy to do because I have, calendars um you know there's a there's a website um uh, maintained or you know like i think now archived by our friend lisbeth in utrecht that has every single show i played oh, maybe wow. every single show i've ever played starting in 2000 and so if i'm like what was i doing march 24th of 2003 <laughs> i can go look and so when I think about that 10 years, I know what the big chunks are. Oh, that we were in Europe then. Oh, that was when we were on tour with Not A Surf. Oh, I was making that record then. And so I can thread my emotional well-being. I can thread what was going on in my life, who I was dating, where I was living. It's all threaded through all the, all those concrete events. But from the moment that I bought my house, uh, the farm, in the autumn of 2007, I didn't really, you know, that was the point at which I 
stopped going on big tours. Mm -hmm. I stopped having big events. Um, you know, I wrote a column for the Seattle weekly, but I couldn't tell you what year it could have been any year between 2007 and 2014. Honestly, I don't remember when I wrote that column and I don't remember whether it was for a year or two years or what. I remember when I started tweeting I remember the feeling of starting to tweet, but I don't remember, <laughs> uh, I don't remember when that was, whether that was 2009 or 2011. Um, I, you know, I started doing the Jonathan Colton cruise the first year, which was 2011, I think, but I met Jonathan and Hodgman on the same day in 2006. And it took us, I, it took, you know, the interesting thing about that relationship, because, because those relationships with Hodgman and Colton do define a, a long period for me because we became, we became very fast friends, close friends. I'm sorry, not fast friends. We became very close friends and I became Friends with, although they were best friends, right? college roommates and best friends, I became friends with each of them individually at the same time. But, you know, they live in New York. You know, Col Colton would go on tour. I would go, uh, you know, I would see him at shows. I would hang out with him over here. And then Hodgman would go out and I would go hang out with him there. And I, I would go on tour with him. So I was friends with them individually, but also friends with their pre-existing friendship. It was very complicated. In a good way. Yeah. But it took us a while. I met them in the summer of 2006 and it wasn't until this, it wasn't until 2007 that we, that we started to recognize like, oh, wait a minute, we're, um, we're friends. Like we're, it's, this isn't just like one of these show business relationships where you meet people out on the road, you know them, you hang out with them when you hang out with them. But like this was a thing where we were visiting each other. We were going on vacations together. We were seeking out reasons to to do do things to with hang one out, another. Right. And uh, but it took it took about a year or, or or a little bit more. But but that's this strange period then from 2007 to 2011, which would have been the first Joko cruise. There's four years in there where we were doing stuff together all the time, and I don't. I couldn't tell you, I, I can find pictures of us, but I couldn't tell you when any of it happened relative to anything else. I mean, the Joko crew started in 2011. That seems forever ago. Right. And, and if you, and if you came to me and said, well, you kind of became friends with Jonathan and John in 2011 when you went on the first Joko cruise, I would go, huh? Okay. Yeah. That seems about right. Except I was we were doing stuff together for five years before the first right, show. Right. Okay. Anyway, the, 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 the problem is I don't have any way to look back at the last 10 years with a confident timeline. And a big part of that is that for many, for seven of those 10 years, I was in the throes of like, declining bipolar, mm. declining untreated bipolar, right? So I was, I was super 
depressed for long stretches. There was a fog over me. Then I would kind of have a strange, like manic period, but it was never, it never had the brightness and color of the manias that I enjoyed in my twenties and thirties. Right. It was always this kind of purple mania, but it was when I was building this whole new life for myself. It was, I was talking to Merlin every week. I was out with John and Jonathan who both, you know, kind of, uh, opened up new worlds for me in terms of fans and, um, and sort of new directions for what I did. None of it really having much to do with the long winters, all of it having to do with, but a lot of stage time, you know, mm-hmm. and then talking to you and talking to, and starting to think of podcasting as a new thing. It all is just the only thing, the only flagpole I can plant is that my daughter was born in the spring of 2011. Mm-hmm. I remember that, obviously. That seems like forever ago. But I was still extremely depressed and untreated for the first five years of my daughter's life. I would lay there in a sort of state of, not catatonia, but just like I couldn't be roused. And I've got this little kid who's like full of life. And she's just poking at me like, hello. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm here and stuff, but it's like not super here, not really, really here. If if that's cool with you, kid, can you like toddle off? So when I I look back at the last year Mm -hmm. and I try to measure how I've been, because that's really key right now. Um, it was a year ago, a little over a year ago that I said, you know what? I'm, I need to sell my house. I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to change my, my life. And selling my house is going to be a method by which I change other aspects of my life. Because the stagnancy I feel in my life, which isn't because of my house, but it's all reinforced by and tied up in my house. I have too much shit. I don't know how to differentiate its importance. I'm cloaked in sentimentality that I can't, that I try to process and can't. It's too pervasive. There's sentimentality on everything Mm. around me. And I, and I'm, I am a profoundly sentimental person. So every, you know, if you're like, do you want this bent safety pin? (laughs) And I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's the safety pin that was holding up the pants on the mannequin at the place where my friend was getting his tux made for his wedding. I don't talk to him anymore, but that safety pin really matters. You know, just like crazy, just crazy. Um, imbuing inanimate objects with life and meaning. Sure. So a year ago, I started to get my house ready and I had all these adventures. I had Psalm out there fixing the porch and I was, you know, doing all this incredible landscaping and painting and cleaning and moving and giving stuff away. And it lasted all last winter. Mm Mm-hmm. And of course that's affecting who I am and how I am. 
like three years ago, I can say I was breaking up with a millennium girlfriend and I was coming out of a fog of just like, what was that relationship and where did it come from? And what did I think? What was mm. I thinking that whole time? <laughs> I was in a relationship with that girl for 18 months and I have no, looking back, that's like, I have no idea what I was thinking. I did not, I, uh, I do not think I'm, um, vulnerable to losing myself. And it's not that I lost myself. Like I'm head over heels and whatever she says is great. I mean, it was a struggle. It was fucking comp the entire time. I was unhappy a lot of the time, but I wasn't able to like step back, get perspective, understand like, Oh, here's who I am in this. And this is what I need. I, I wasn't, I did I was not good at that generally not good at it and really not good in this situation. And she was a powerful woman and was like, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take, I'll take charge of answering those questions for you. And you know, my natural kind of like, Oh, okay, go. Well, shit. Glad somebody's driving, uh, did not serve me very well. Mm -hmm. So I can see, I can look back three years and see that I can look back and see my, see running for city council and knowing uh, four years ago, whatever and knowing like how that felt i even can remember what what being king neptune felt like but the last year has been kind of characterized by this really conflicting um energies a lot of feeling like i am going to move forward i am I absolutely i am going to start moving I cannot at, at this point in my life remain static and I don't know, I have to start moving in multiple directions. I don't want to sell my house. I don't want to clean. I don't want to paint. I don't want to caulk. I don't want to move. I don't want to give any of my shit away, but I have to, I have to every day wake up and do these things I don't want to do. I was also during that whole period fighting these battles with iHeart Media and maximumfun.org mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and feeling like I was working, I was doing a tremendous amount of work that I really loved and I wasn't being compensated for it at all by people who had promised me that they were going to treat me right. And that felt awful, but I had to keep going. You know, my instinct was to say, well, screw it then screw all of this. But, but I, you know, I powered through and, and all of these things, I should be able to feel pride in myself and say, you did a good job. Right. Like this sucked. You kept going. You should be proud. But I don't, I don't have that pride. I don't have that capacity to, to say good job to myself. I a hundred percent understand that and agree with that. Like a, uh, like a friend of mine wrote me the other day, uh, she sent me just a couple of texts in the middle of the night and they were, they were absolutely nothing but like, Hey, I was thinking of you and I just wanted to send you some praise because I was, I was thinking how little, you know, like how, how much praise there is for you in the world, but how little of it you take seriously. And, and, um, and it's too bad that you can't understand how much we love you 
signed your friend. Right. And it, and, and, and the, just the, the fact that it came out of nowhere, I wasn't expecting it. It wasn't related to anything. She said, you know, I was just thinking about that time, you know, nine months ago when you did this thing that was impressive and to you, it just seemed like this rote thing. And I just wanted to say, I was thinking about it and, and, you know, and, and so, it, so it, so it got through, right. It, it made it past my defenses because I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't fishing for it. I didn't, it didn't come right on the heels of a thing that I could kind of say like, Oh yeah, it's all a magic trick. You know, it was, and, and, and so it stood out to me as an example of a thing where, Oh, I just actually received praise. Mm. And 95% of the time when people give me praise, which isn't to say that they, you know, they're not loaning me praise. They're not selling me praise. They're trying to give me praise. But what I feel like is that they're shooting me with praise. And so I have like shields. Well, why, what do you mean by shooting you with praise? I mean that I, I have always found praise burdensome because the, because the, my primary mode is to feel like I am a disappointment and that I'm, that I don't deserve nice things or praise because when someone says, wow, you did a good job on that. My instinct, my answer is, well, yeah, it's too bad that I didn't do the real thing. It's too bad that I didn't do the thing that that I could have done that would have been a lot better than this. But yeah, thanks for praising this like shabby job I did on this small thing. Like that's my mind. And so praise feels like a, like an injury because it gives my brain an opportunity to not just dismiss it, not just not accept it, but to convert that praise into, um, criticism. The praise for the thing I did is it just stands in bold relief. The thing I didn't do. We would like to say thank you very much to Brooke Linen. That's right, Brooke Linen. Making your home beautiful is the ultimate form of self-care. And did you know, I bet you knew, that you spend a third of your life in sheets in your bed. Don't you want them to be comfortable? They should be. So when you sleep, sleep well, right? On hotel-quality sheets that don't cost an arm and a leg, people are loving Brooke Linen, including me. Since we got in it, listen. I've said this before. They can pay me to like do the read. I'll do the read, but they can't pay me to honestly say how much I like something. These are now the only sheets that I will use. We have like three or four other sets of sheets. Toy will not use them. Get rid of them. Don't want to see them. Only the Brooklinen. My wife thinks I'm crazy. And I, she said, fine, you have to do the laundry then to wash these sheets because we have other sheets that are perfectly good. And I say no. So I, every week now I'm washing these sheets because they're the only ones I use. I guess I should get more and you should get some more too. If you already have some, if you don't, you should really try these out. They are very, very comfortable. They're very, very nice 
to lay in. I mean, I'm telling you like all the things that you would think about sheets, like they have it all. And uh, most bedding, luxury sheets and towels are marked up as much as 300%. And that's outrageous. This company is different. Brooklinen, they care about us. They have a direct relationship with you. When you're buying the sheets, you're buying from them. There's no middleman. There's no one else to take a little piece, to take a little bit of your money. You're buying just the sheets and just from the people who make them. And they don't just feel great, but they look great too. There are over 20 colors and patterns that you can choose from. You don't have to just get the white sheets. You can get any color and you can mix and match and have fun with it. And this is a special deal for just you guys. Brooke Linen, it's just spelled B-R-O-O-K, Brooke Linen, L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com. You will get 10% off and free shipping when you use the promo code ROADWORK over there at brooklinen.com. And uh, all of their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. But the only way that you can get 10% off and free shipping is to use the promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen.com. The best sheets ever. So thanks again to brooklinen.com and use that promo code ROADWORK for 10% off and free shipping. We appreciate their sponsorship and I appreciate them making these sheets. Thanks very much to Brooklinen. So I'm on guard against praise all the time. I completely and, understand. Completely. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want it. I mean, it's not that I don't seek it. No, I'm, I'm the same. I know exactly what you're saying. But for me, it's not, it, and it's not, I'm not sure if you were exactly saying that, um, you know, that you feel you don't deserve it. I'm not hearing that from you and I hope you don't feel that way, but it's, to me, it's almost like if you get praise in some way like that, that because for me, like, I know if I've done something well, I know if I've done a good job with something and I know if I haven't and if somebody says, oh, that, that's really good. And you know that it's like not like you're kind of saying like it's, it's not a great thing. It's just a thing that you did. I don't know. I reject praise generally speaking. And I don't, I don't feel pride. I know we've talked about that a little bit before, but I was talking to a friend about it recently. I don't, I don't feel pride in things. Do you? Yeah. No, no. See, I don't. And I was talking to someone about this and she was telling me, Oh, you know, you should absolutely feel pride. I mean, look at, look at this thing you've done. Look at this thing you've done. I'm like, you know, but none of it's really that good and none of it is good enough. And it's not like I'm walking around thinking I'll never be happy. This is not good enough. It's just simply, I like, I know that it's like nothing worth being proud of. You know, I'm proud. I'm very proud of my children for things that they accomplish. I'm proud of friends that I have, I'm like not proud to be their friend, but I'm saying like if they have an accomplishment or they do something great, uh, I can feel good for them, which I'm told is what pride is. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not, I can't, I can't actually say that I'm, am or have ever been necessarily really proud of anything that I've done. And people would say, what are you talking about? You built five by five. You know, this was a, a big thing when no one else is doing it and you did that. Or people say, oh, Fireside, you get thousands of customers. Like, no, I'm not pri proud of it. I don't feel any pride in it. I feel like there's a billion things left to do. And yeah. a lot of things that are done could be improved. And it's not saying I only see the faults in those things, but I mostly see the faults in those things. 
And I'm not, I'm not capable of patting myself on the back. I'm not capable of saying, yeah, Dan, you did like really good there. Like that was really good. You should feel good about that. I don't. I'm like, no, I, I, if I waste any time feeling good about that, then I won't improve it or I won't do the next thing that I need to get done. And I think this is common. I mean, I don't, I don't imagine that, um, that Merlin, I mean, I've, I've paid Merlin plenty of compliments and I know that he's, it's hard for him to accept those. Mm. Like, I don't know what Merlin's relationship to pride is, uh, but I have a sense of it from being his good friend for a decade or more, 15 years now. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I know it's not uncommon, you know, because, because Merlin and I have extremely different emotional natures, right? And yet he also has a hard time accepting praise. He also doesn't, I don't think if you asked him to review the last 10 years of his life that he would say like, it's been an, you know, an unalloyed pleasure. <laughs> um, but for me, the, the acknowledgement of this, the recognition that, that I have lived my life thus far immune to being praised and immune to feeling accomplishment and immune to, um, feeling like pride or joy. And that these are things that I don't want to, you know, as an artist, as a, as a dramatic young man, um, my feeling about those, my, my sense of my own darkness was in some ways, you know, I cultivated it because it was dramatic because I looked like Mr. Darcy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was out on the fen with my cloak blowing in the wind, feeling nothing but sorrow. But as as time has gone on, I recognize like I can keep feeding that dragon the rest of my life. Right. I can be 90 years old and have never felt pride or joy or I can try to confront it. And the problem is that all the things that you hear, like, why don't you just meditate or yoga or just eat uh-huh. right and exercise or, you know, like I just, I've, I've never, I've never taken a path that was offered. If there was a chance for me to step off the road with a machete and bushwhack at great labor to arrive at the same location two days later, covered with bruises. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like I'll go to where the, you know, I'll meet you guys at the bar, but I have to take a route that I hew from the jungle rather than just go on the road because Jesus, the road, am I right? God, (laughs) the road who, you know, how can I just trust the person that built the road and all the people that walked on it? I have to, you know, I have to make sure that there's not some wisdom to find in the bog. But the reason that I, that I'm, I'm dealing with this right this moment is that, um, you know, I've, I've already stood at the turning point and admitted that my life had become unmanageable several times, but for the last year, I have sort of subjected everyone to my daily um, frustration and anxiety, uh-huh. which are emotions or expressions of emotion that I never used to allow. 
I would never have anxiety or talk about it or acknowledge that it was that, but I also just wouldn't feel it. You know, I, I didn't feel anxiety, uh, expressed as anxiety. I felt depression, which was the catch all for all negative emotion. It just all became depression. But also like, I didn't really express a constant level of frustration. I would explode in, in frustrated moments. And, and I've been in, I've been inflicting it on everyone because I've been making this big change, but it's all been out. It's all been outward. I've been projecting it onto these, these missions. You know, I have to sell the house. Now I have to search for a house. Now I have to, I have to deal with this contract. I have to make these moves. I have to set up this account. I have not really been throughout this whole season practicing a different way, except for giving away things, you know, trying to confront sentimentality by just saying like, well, this thing that I love the most, I am sending into the stream Mm -hmm. in order to be free, not only of it, but of attachment, which is, it's been one thing to do big, bold moves like that, but it's been another thing to open up the box of my dad's tax returns from the seventies and throw them into the garbage right? rather than keep them. Because I think that the, the one day when I open my presidential library, it's going to want my dad's tax returns. But I have not in this whole period really begun a comprehensive program of exercise. I have not taken any steps to sit with myself in Kumbaya. I have not been going to Alcoholics Anonymous, which I absolutely should have been doing the whole last year. I've been what we call white knuckling it, just like grabbing on for dear life. But yesterday I made an offer on a house and it was, congratulations. it, It was accepted by the, by the sellers. Wow. Was this the same one we were talking about last time? What did we talk about last No, time? this is the new one. It's, it's new. The house came on the market. There were, the house came on the market at like five o'clock at night by right. nine this o'clock was the one that Yes. This, this yeah. is the one that we were talking about that you were, you were freaking out a week ago Yeah. about maybe not getting it because it was, uh, you know, it was right there in it. Yeah. So you got it. Yeah. That's big. It's, it scared off all the other buyers because it's, too, because it's insane. It's mm-hmm. an insane house and it's just, everything about it is insane. And anyone with that in their right mind would like all of the other, you know, it was one of those houses kind of like mine, kind of like the farm where it went online and it was just an explosion of activity. People couldn't believe this house was so cheap and so cool uh, immediately became a hot home and, you know, people, um, touring it and wanting to, you know, um, thinking that this was the, their dream or whatnot. And then as soon as everyone arrived at the house and walked through it and started ticking off all of the things, mm-hmm. it was what I've said from a year and a half ago it was exactly what I was looking for, which is to say a 65 year old house. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, is that true? 65 years. 
Um, no. Well, yeah. Okay. 65 year old house still in possession of its original owners who, because of the location of the house in the world, the original owners were Boeing engineers mm-hmm. who built the house in the immediate aftermath of the war. And like dad was a Boeing engineer during the transition. I mean, during the, the construction of the 707 and the B-52, like, like Boeing, while they were still, they were still doing regular maintenance, maintenance on B-29s. And this guy very clearly just from the graffiti around the house was some, was an engineer that played a, a role in the development of the 727. So he was an engineer, an electrical engineer. And so, um, the house is updated because that's how engineers are, but (laughs) it's not, um, it's not aesthetically updated. Mm -hmm. It still has the built-in lights that look like little Sputniks. Like it, it still has the tile in the bathroom that has little kidney shaped graffitos like here's George Jetson. I mean, it's like really. And in 1955, that would have been early for that. 1959, something like that. It would have been really like early days for like pew, 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 kind of modernism. But these were airplane people. Anyway, walking around the house, you just go, oh, <laughs> right. This is this is this house is 65 years old. And if you were looking for a dishwasher that had a dry cycle, or if you were looking to put something on the stove and have the stove communicate with you in any way, um, this isn't the house for you. Not only that, though, if you were thinking, if you were thinking that there weren't going to be stickers on the closet door commemorating the Apollo 11 program, you were also mistaken. Um, this house is like intact, which means that just from like, just from move in standpoint, I mean, I sent, I, I put up on Instagram, uh, the pictures of all of the electrical junction boxes, Mm -hmm. That I could find. Yeah, I was looking at some of those, and that's pretty cool. Of, yeah, they're all daisy chained. Uh, and this was a, this guy also was somebody that had a band saw and a drill press and a, and a, um, you know, like fifteen different major power tools. So he had it all wired, and I'm sure he did all the wiring over the over the years, right? So there's like wiring from the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. So I'm going to, part of the purchase of this house is I need to hire a qualified electrician to start basically at the street, at the point (laughs) at which the wires from the street touch the house and we're going to have to go all the way through it. And it's, the thing is that the guy that built the, or the guy that lived there, all the, all the outlets, I mean, it's one of those houses where half the outlets are two prong and half are three, but all the three prong outlets are grounded he did the he did the upgrade that a lot of people f- 
did over time, which is, do I need a three-prong outlet here? Yes. So yeah. I'm putting one in and I'm doing it right. But over there, all that's ever plugged into that is a lamp, so I don't need to change it. Anyway, that's going to cost money. It's also going to cost time and effort and stuff. But but unlike the lake house, this is the stuff that I love to do. I love to f- mess around with panels and breakers and like it isn't unfinished work. It's work that needs to be upgraded and I can upgrade it the way I want. I can bring as much power into this house as I want right now. I never have to look at the panel and go, God, I wish I had another fucking thousand amps. <laughs> you know, I just have to put in the number of amps that I want, right? I just, it, uh, I just need, I can do what I want. And I realized It's not that I want a 65-year-old house that's never been touched. I want a 65-year-old house and to make my own decisions about what gets changed and what doesn't. So so a lot of people toured this house. I went to the open house and stood there and watched people just stream in and out and listen to them talk about it. And I sympathized with them. A lot of them were young families, you know, three, four kids. They're looking for a good elementary school. And the elementary school that's good is, you know, it's close by. It's part of the reason people want to buy into this neighborhood is the whole fucking good schools, but baloney. But the house is just daunting. It just overwhelmed them. And so I made an offer and I just offered them asking price. You know, when you see that hot home thing, sometimes in Seattle, that means that it's going to sell for 50% more than it, than they offer. Right. Sure. And this was a, this, their asking price was low. And I think they did it because they expected it would attract a lot of attention and that the the house would get bid up. But it, but the house scared everyone, terrified them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I just said like, yeah, I'll pay, I'll, I'll meet your asking price. And there were a couple of other bids, but I beat them because I was, uh, just had, you know, better financials or whatever. Right. And so a year and a half ago, I saw the possibility because my daughter's mother sold her apartment on Capitol Hill and bought a house in South Seattle. And that was key because my daughter's mother and I both bought our homes at about the same time. I bought the farm. She bought her apartment in 2007. And they were kind of examples of two directions that either of us could have gone in in 2007. She bought a two-bedroom apartment in the heart of Capitol Hill, and I bought a four-bedroom house out at the edge of Seattle. Mm -hmm. And we paid about the same amount of money for the two properties. So over the course of the 10 years, and when we bought those houses, like she had, she was I think maybe even still married or just getting divorced. We weren't like, we, ne- we never at that point in time imagined that we would, um, I mean, we weren't seeing each other and had, and wouldn't, it wouldn't have occurred to us to in 2007. By 2011, we had a, a kid together. But when she sold her apartment and came down to South Seattle and bought a house 
she paid less for the house in the suburbs than she had sold her apartment for. And that was a story that I just latched onto. Like, wow, right, of course. And you and I have talked about this a lot. At 300th, you get more house for less money than at 200th. Right. And at 100th and at, and at 10th. And she lived on 10th. And she moved out to 200th. And the exchange was, was this profound difference in lifestyle. And you, you know, you give up living at 10th and all the stuff that goes along with that, which is to say like a choice of 25 pho restaurants within walking distance. But what she gained was, you know, this whole project, a new life. And so I had this idea, I'm going to sell my house and I'm going to buy a house down in that neighborhood for less money than I'm, than I sell my house for. And it's going to be part of this story for me. But then I sold my house and the market seemed to be kind of flattening. I didn't sell it for what I, what I thought I was going to. And then, but the market was flattening across Seattle, but it was actually, it never stopped rising in the South because the Southern city was underpriced. So I did the thing that, I mean, I, so I was terrified that I'd sold my house in a depressed market and was now trying to buy a house in an, in a heat, heated up market. Right. That's the opposite of what you want to do. The opposite. And so all summer long for the last five months, I've been looking at houses every morning, every afternoon and every evening, touring them, you know, like chewing on them, trying to picture myself in them while the houses in the South end continued to rise in price and the amount of money I had to spend remained stagnant or declined. And also none of the houses that I saw I liked. And eventually I started looking at houses that I honestly couldn't afford. And the lake house, the one I made an offer on, I, uh, the banks would have loaned me the money. I could have bought it. Mm-hmm. I could have bought it and it would have been fine. But I would have spent every last penny I had access to. Part of the lake house, part of the problem with it was I needed all that work and I couldn't have afforded it. I would have been living in drywall dust. Right. No, that wouldn't have been. You don't want that. So this house that I bought that I'm in the process now of buying is $250,000 less wow. than the lake house. Wow. And it is less than the house that it's less than I sold the farm for. So I did it like 18 months of pursuing this story while also trying to find a house that I loved and would love to live in, I did it. And if I were a better person, I would feel pride. I would say, you did it. I mean, my sister would say that I manifested it and I would roll my eyes at her. But I stuck to it, you know, I suffered it. And I spread that suffering around my mom and my sister and my daughter and her mother and 
and everyone who listens to all these shows, you all have had to suffer along with me as I, you know, agonized. But like the, the thing that I set out to do is what I did. You know, knock on wood, right? Mm-hmm. There are a million yeah. things that could happen. We could all get struck by lightning. But, but a month from now, I will take possession of a house that I'm probably going to live in for at least a decade. Right. That's going to be a place that I pour my energy. I'm going to be working on it. I'm going to be making it into a thing. And hopefully I've learned from my experience with the farm and over the last year that I learned that I need to do that work and not just sit and, and let it molder and fester, but like recognize, look, if I want a window there, put the window in and don't, don't let that, don't let the lack of that window become a, a cudgel that you use to punish yourself. Because the lack of the window isn't the problem. It's the, it's the failure to proceed. This house, Dan, mm-hmm. has an intact bomb shelter. Yeah, bomb shelters are, are right up your alley. They are. And I, over the last year and a half, I have said multiple times, I'm looking at houses built in the 50s in a neighborhood dominated by Boeing engineers. Why have I not seen any bomb shelters? (laughs) Surely there are houses in this neighborhood that have bomb shelters built into them when they were new. Why am I not seeing them? And I I walked into this house and I'm walking around. I'm like, wow, this house, it's kind of incredible. Like, look at the, there's like ham radio shit scrawled in the (laughs) rafters. And, you know, it's all all the stuff. I mean, this, I think that this person worked on Apollo. I mean, I need to do a lot of, a lot of research. His kids are still alive there who sold me the house. But then I get down into the basement. I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. This is weird. Now, where does this hallway go? And it kind of go around a corner. And then there's this, then there's this doorway that is like, it's weird. Even from the outside, you look at it and you go, what is that about? And I recognize that it is, uh, that the doorway is built as a somewhat hardened position, which is to say a defensible, Mm. um, a defensible zigzag. You can't get anything in there. You can't get like, you couldn't put a bed in that room. And then I, then I look around and I'm like, wait a minute, this, why is this room made out of cinder blocks? This isn't, these interior walls made out of cinder blocks aren't load bearing this and then I get inside and there are four bunks for all the family members and racks and racks of shelves for all their supplies there's a there's a clean air in (laughs) and a dirty air out (laughs) there are um, there are rust stains on the floor from those 50 gallon civil defense barrels that would have had fresh water and government cheese, whatever, whatever, you know, all their staples. 
and I, and you know, my jaw just hit the floor. I was like, it's a freaking, it's not only a bomb shelter, but it's still got the beds. Not everybody wants that, you know? Right. No, that's a very specific, very specific thing. I don't need it. I should, pro- what I should probably do is tile it and turn it into a Russian bath. I don't believe that I'm going to need a bomb shelter, but you know, I have one now. I have one and it's got a hardened entry point. And frankly, as a bomb shelter aficionado, I have to say that I would have built that hardened entry point differently, but I'm not going to try and fix it now. Mm-hmm. The The prior owner has been defending that position for 65 years. <laughs> Like, it was good enough for him. Yeah. Anyway, I've purchased this house, or I'm in the process of purchase, purchasing it, at which point now all of this potential energy becomes kinetic. I cannot buy this house, move into it, unpack my sentimentality and arrange it on shelves, go back to being sedentary, go back to being self-recriminatory and rejoin my life already in progress. I have been focusing on the external for the last year and a half, the external process of putting myself into a place where I can begin to, you know, and then it's completely backwards, right? Anyone, any guru listening all these times would have said, look, it doesn't matter where you live. You just need to, you need to get right with the universal oneness. I mean, even Jason Finn would say, you just need to eat more kale, you know, like, like (laughs) Jason would love to be my guru. And he, he, even he, in all of his fucking, um, shits and grooving would have been, you know, has been saying like, get, get right with God first. But now I have nothing else to do, but work on the electrical and improve, improve myself, right? Improve this house and improve myself. 